We often talk about our shows like they're kind of Trojan horses, like they're kind of, they should be immensely entertaining and they are, they still should offer some kind of provocation in terms of showing something to an audience that they would never not, they would never normally see in a theatre space, especially in established theatre space like STC or like MTC or the Malthouse or wherever, like it shouldn't be the kind of work they would see from anybody else. It should be kind of wild and ridiculous and fun and farcical. Um, and the work can always be read on that level. But then also there's supposed to be another level of kind of uh, provocation under that as well. And, uh, and so, yeah, it becomes about making sure that we actually can get the audience on side so once they like us, we can then start testing that relationship. We can start poking them and provoking them and going, well, how much do you like us now? And do you like us if we do this? Hi, I'm Dan Brophy and welcome to Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. How do you turn what you love into what you do? Well, each episode, I'll talk to my favorite creatives to discuss the tools and tricks associated with turning your passion into a career. Here at Quit Your Day Job, we believe that the pursuit of what you love is just a process and one that is available to anyone. So what are you waiting for? Your journey to feeling more connected to who you are and what you do starts now. What does it take to make work that excites people on a national level? What are you prepared to do in order to make work that you are truly proud of? My guest this week is theatre writer-director Declan Breen. He has a body of work that spans every major theatre institution in the country. He got his start in Melbourne's literal and figurative underground, staging plays in car parks and building sites, and is now one of the best-regarded theatre makers of his generation. But that doesn't mean he's lost his edge. Declan's work still crosses genres and formats and merges highbrow and lowbrow culture, queer performance art, multimedia, in-jokes, bad language, pop art and surrealist beauty, but always with a view to comment on society or humanity or the profanity of the culture. His recent direction of Blackie Blackie Brown, written by Nakia Louie and currently showing at the STC, is no exception. It melds Japanese manga iconography with Tarantino themes for a tale of vigilante Aboriginal revenge on white settler injustice. The play is simultaneously astounding, thought-provoking, funny, and tapping of some current-day zeitgeist that makes it feel truly progressive. Next up, in July this year, the MTC will stage Declan's adaptation of the Lars von Trier film Melancholia. It's actually Declan's tenacity that I'm most interested in speaking to him about because in the last decade, he's managed to amass a huge body of work that averages the release of two plays a year. When I sat down with him for this interview around the time of the release of his play, The Homosexuals, I wanted to find out what his creative process looks like in a practical day-to-day sense. How does he manage to average two major works a year? And before someone was paying him to do so, How did he create a lifestyle in which he could get good in the first place? There's never been a better time to say screw it 
and just do it. And this episode is great for anyone who's looking to get active in their ideal career space by pooling the passion and resources of their local creative community. It might be worth flagging that this chat does contain explicit language. And before we get down to the interview, if you like the show, could you do what you can to spread the love? You could write a review and rate it on iTunes. You could share it to your Facebook page. Or you could screen capture it and post it to your Instagram stories. Or simply share it via text with someone who may find it inspiring. Now, please enjoy my chat with theatre writer-director Declan Green. Declan, thanks for having a chat. Thank you for asking to chat with me and having me here. Well, so right now we're sitting in the rehearsal room of the Malt House. Yes. You do... You're based here at the moment? Yeah, I'm the resident artist at Malt House. I have been for the last year and a half. What does that mean? Uh, Well, it's kind of a fairly non-committal job title because I work across a lot of different areas here. Like I work um, as a playwright here, so I just have my play The Homosexuals on here. Um, But I've also worked as a director at the Malt House um, in the past. And and then I work as a dramaturg as well. And um, then also kind of working alongside Mark Pritchard and uh, in kind of new play development here. So it's a kind of fairly multifaceted job. Does that mean that you're, the expectation is that you, you're here five days a week? Yeah, this year it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a full-time mm. job this year. So it's pretty and interesting. For those who don't know, because I'm sort of in the world and I barely know, what's a dramaturg? A dramaturg is like a play editor. So it's, yeah, basically if you think about like what a novelist does or what a, a journalist editor does, it's basically the, it's just another word for that. But it's also kind of, um, it doesn't only cover the editing of the text, it also covers kind of uh, almost like an outside eye kind of perspective on the, on the production as well and kind of facilitating the relationships between all the different departments and making sure that the right uh, kind of intention and the questioning and the politic of it is all kind of coming through clearly enough for the audience. Does that role develop over time? Because it almost is like a, a secondary director's eye. Yeah, yeah. It, you become a kind of a secondary director and you become a secondary playwright and kind of also sometimes you can ask to be do that for design as well. It's kind of, it's, you're just kind of always outside it slightly or that's kind of the, the, the goal. And is the idea that because you're not the director and you're not entirely focused on your vision, you're a little bit more unbiased and maybe more familiar with the research or the ideas? Yes, absolutely. And in, in a, a lot of contexts, the dramaturg is the person who compiles a lot of the research for the production and stuff like that. And also, you're also there as kind of the audience's advocate in the room as well. <laughs> you're right. kind of the person going, I'm, you know, I th- feel like this could make more sense or like, I feel like Barry this could Kosky. be clearer. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I'm, I always love to start the podcast by asking people when someone says to you what do you do what do you say to them uh i always say i'm a writer because i feel like that's the simplest answer <laughs> and it means i can get out of the conversation as quickly as possible <laughs> and i don't bomb. like talking to people <laughs> except for you and would they if they do hear that do they say oh what do you write yeah generally and then i'll say i write for um i write for stage or i write for screen or something like that just based on what you're doing at the time yeah yeah generally would you how much of your labeling for self does divides the idea between writing versus directing well i don't know it's kind of always constantly in flux and i feel like i need both 
Um, there's something about the level of creative control you have as a director which appeals to me enormously because I'm a control freak. Um, and so the fact that as a director you move across lots of different uh, kind of departments of a um, theatrical production, that's really appealing to me. And you can kind of... Um, you can, you know, kind of have your take on the material kind of uh, heard kind of loudly and resonantly. Um, but then I kind of feel the same way about, about writing as well. I kind of also like that, um, again, the control freak part of me likes that you're the foundation of the production and the <laughs> at least on a piece of, um, of new playwriting, you're kind of orchestrating everything the audience sees, at least up until the point where the uh, director and actors kind of become involved in it. Do you find it more liberating to be directing work you've written? I actually very rarely direct the work that I've written. Like, um, I, the, there are two parts to kind of how I work as an artist. One is that, um, at least in terms of where, where writing is concerned, I, I write my own kind of solo plays. Um, but then I also... And, and I, I've actually never directed a play that I've just written by myself. Collaboration is very important to me, so I always work with a director um, very closely. And... Um, but then with my work I do uh, with Ash Flanders through uh, the theatre company I co-run with him, which is called Sisters Grimm, um, we, um, we co-write all the shows and then I direct them. So there's still like a really close process of collaboration with Ash, but it's like I, I feel like I've got enough distance and I can, I've still got somebody kind of taking care of or making sure I don't make any stupid decisions or run too far in the wrong direction. Would you like to be able to direct plays you've written Solo? No, 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 not really at all. I've, I've never really felt the desire to do that because I think that, um, I don't know, I think maybe it's on, on one level I have a lot of extreme arrogance going on where I kind of think I can do these things, I can write things and I can direct things. But on the other hand, like on the other side of the corner, I have like crippling self-doubt most of the time where I'm just like, I, can't, I second guess my creative instincts constantly. I always am concerned that I've done completely the wrong thing. And it's very important to me that I have someone near me going like, you're just being paranoid, you're being stupid, shut up, like you're doing the right thing. Or no, you're doing completely the wrong thing. Like it's, I kind of really, really need that. Or I spend too much time inside my head and nothing happens, nothing, nothing productive comes of whatever I'm trying to do. I notice for friends who I'm really enamoured with their work, they more often than not will have that sort of external dialogue of, I don't think it's any good, I think it's terrible, and it's interesting for me to observe when, it's, um, when the work is amazing and when it doesn't work, their response is the same. Like yeah. they, they're, they're actually still in that same... It's not, it's not like it varies based on whether it's yeah. you know, great work or not. They've just got that same process, and I realise that's why it is so necessary to have feedback because they're not less anxious when the work is great. Well, totally. I mean, in terms of the, the way I work as well, I don't... Um I never really believe, even when people tell me I need to stop working on it and that it's fine and that it works, I never actually, I can never see it. Like, I, that's why, it, uh, like, it is in my own internal dialogue whenever I'm making work is just that it has to be better. It has to be better. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. And that's why I change things endlessly. I will just endlessly rewrite something over and over and over again. I will, I torture actors horribly as a director because I constantly re-block things and I never give them enough time to learn their lines because I'm always changing the script and I'm always reimagining bits of the production because it's like I see something and I see it as a draft and I'm like, cool, this, this is good, but it, this is what we could do to improve it or to kind of make it more robust or make it more clear or to take it in another surprising direction or make it more complex or something like that. So yeah, I kind of need people around me to be able to go just put it away like put it like leave it <laughs> it's it's fine and if I don't have that then uh, you, I kind of just end up with a catastrophe on my hands 
Is it usually something like an impending start date that makes you put something to bed and accept that it's yes. it's done? Yeah, yeah. I mean, although oddly, like I had a I had a production that I did in um, Sydney in 2014 with Ash, a sister's Grim production called Calpurnia Descending, and um, with which we did with Sydney Theatre Company and Malthouse. And up until um, up until that point, I'd always stopped at opening night. I'd always been like, opening is the cutoff. I'm not going to change anything after opening. But Ash and I kind of got to opening and we did the first performance of it and we were just like, nah, like, it needs to be better. Like, it's not there yet. So we got, we had Paul Capsis and Sandy Gore, two like incredibly seasoned, iconic kind of Sydney actors who were like absolute pros. But like, you know, the standard practice is you stop rehearsing the fucking play at opening. (laughs) And we're like, guys, we want to keep working on it. And they were like, okay. So they came in for a couple of weeks after that and we just kept rehearsing the fucking thing and performing it that night and changing things and they'd perform it again that night so the people who saw the uh, your first couple of weeks of that ended up seeing a completely different show to the people who saw it a month later wow and even and from memory that show was kind of riffing on I mean even aesthetically riffing on like glitchcore sort of the idea of you know a computer program repeating on itself and, and you know shifting so that kind of it's true to the material for well, it absolutely to keep and it was also like the huge irony of like i mean that show did end in kind of like demented kind of vaporwave glitch art but it, <laughs> it began with um the trope of the um the kind of uh hollywood backstage melodrama kind of 42nd street and um Footlight Parade and those kind of films which are all about the ticking clock leading up to opening night and getting the show on and making it all happen at opening and we tried and we didn't get it done by opening like the genre dictates has to occur so we Sorry failed even in that well I love to just do a you know almost a chronology of past present and future for the podcast so I'd love to sort of find out for the background of how you started doing what you're doing and at what stage it came to fruition that this could be a job and this is how mm-hmm. you were going to work so how far back would I have needed to meet you to find someone who was writing and thinking about making making narrative whether or not that was in a, a, mm. a play a theatrical form I feel like I've weirdly like always been just really interested in theatre like I've always loved it I've never really had kind of any like life or career crises where kind of my career or my kind of um yeah like my passion is concerned because it's kind of like always just been there I used to like put on plays for my family when I was a little kid and for my you know like would reenact Lord of the Dance for my grandmother like no one wanted to watch it but I'd certainly do it (laughs) and um and yeah like I always wanted to be an actor and then at a certain kind of crucial point uh I saw myself on film and went like oh I can only really do one thing and that's kind of be a kind of hysterical faggot so and there weren't many plays that had kind of hysterical faggot characters in them that i necessarily wanted to play so i started writing I'm gonna, yeah I'm i write literally them. just started writing those characters for myself and um all the varying shades of hysterical, hysterical faggot. faggot yeah the all two of them all those like shrill yeah. and <laughs> whining. black to white it's what a range and um and then i don't know and then i kind of watched myself performing those parts and was still just like uh, I, I really don't even... I think there are other people who can play these better than me. So I became much more interested in writing and directing than I was um, than I was acting. And then I... Um, and also maybe part of that was the, the first time I worked with Ash Flanders, um, who's still my creative partner after, I think, 12 years we've been friends and, and, and been collaborators. Um, 
there was something about I was performing then as well and watching him perform I was just like I will never be as good as him he's like he's everything I kind of want to be as an actor or everything I would want to be as an actor but um, I can't be but kind of what I can do is write really good material for him and with him (laughs) and um, so that was kind of really creatively cool and nourishing and having someone who really believes in and cares for and champions what a, a performer wants and needs, which is good work and how to get yeah, there, yeah. is it's a blessing for those actors to have someone who really be- believes in and understands what they do. Totally, and, you know, totally. I, you know, I could never do that, but I could happily play the part in the role that would midwife someone through that process to get them to that place. Definitely. I mean, any, anybody who works in a creative field like that, like you just can't, it's impossible to forget, even though people do, that actors are... Like, they are the absolute most important thing. Like, they're, they're, they're at the top of the pile. Like, nothing works if the actors aren't good. It doesn't matter how good your script is. It doesn't matter how stunning your vision is. It doesn't matter how amazing your equipment is. Like, it's just... Yeah, they're, they the, are they're the first point of call. Yeah. Did you have... So, you said 12 years ago. How old would that have made you when you and Ash started collaborating? I think Ash and I are... Maybe this chronology is going to be really fucked up. I think that um, we met when I was 19 or 20, and Ash was a few years older than me. Um, and so how old am I now? Now I'm 32. Yeah, it's about right. Yeah. It's about right. Maybe 20. Maybe I was 20. And was there an instant frisson that meant that you were aware of each other's capabilities and able to create dynamic work from the beginning? Sort of. We had a, we had actually had a fairly like rocky start to our friendship because, um, because, uh, he auditioned for a show that I'd written and was collaborating with another person on. And then um, she and I had this, like, enormous uh, falling out um, that played out throughout the rehearsal period where we were both turning up to rehearsals and not talking to each other. And it was... So he was kind of crawling the crossfire between these two fucking, like, insane dickheads and um, who were both just losing it. And, um, and again, I was, like, 20 at the time. I was a baby. I was completely emotionally unstable. But if you'd asked that 20-year-old, they were an artist. Yeah, no, totally. I thought I was doing amazing work. I thought I was incredible. The show was also an absolute piece of shit. And, um, and so then we put on this piece of garbage. No one came to see it. And, um, and afterwards, Ash was like, I will never talk to that person again in my life. But, um, but I thought he was amazing and was just, like, I thought he was just unbelievably funny and cool and interesting. And also, he kind of represented something... Um, in terms of queer culture that I'd never really uh, been around before. Like, I, can't, I think I had at the time quite a um, distant relationship with my own sexuality. Like, I knew I was gay and I was comfortable with that, but I had this really kind of strong sense of rejection against um, anything that was camp, against anything that was... Uh, like, a, the idea of going to a gay bar I just thought was really embarrassing. I was really interested in punk at the time. <laughs> and, um, and Ash kind of represented this kind of odd thing where he kind of fused both of those things like ash loved the things i loved he loved hole and he loved um you know like yeah he loved pj harvey and like and stuff like that but then he also really loved dolly parton and musicals and old films and stuff like that and like and you know he loved greg Araki and he loved the doom generation and all that like stuff that i thought was really really cool but yeah he kind of straddled those two worlds or showed that they were actually just two sides of exactly the same coin so he kind of taught me a lot about myself as well so when we kind of reconnected I think we were friends but also he was a few steps ahead of me and I think that he kind of taught me a lot as well and just to give uh, people an idea of 12 years ago you know I think feel, feel like Melbourne's culture evolves exponentially so it's hard to imagine what it would have been like trying to get a little baby co-op together as, mm. as far as 
you know, kids trying to make theatre and what that would have looked like. So in the mid-noughties, how did you guys do it? How did you get to know each other and then just find a way to put a play on and where did it take place? Um, I don't know. Like, we, we were fairly... I, I think one of the things that's kind of always been good about the way Ash and I have worked and also often blindingly stupid is just that we've always been led by this kind of base assumption we've had that we know the best way to do everything that we've just been like we don't need to ask anybody for guidance we don't need to like (laughs) we don't need to look to anyone for help we don't need to look for examples from anybody else we just have always been like we got this like we know how to do it and I don't know why we have always felt that but we just have we've never felt like we had to ask for permission to do anything before so um, we, so when we kind of started out, I think we just... Um, the first show, even though um, eventually we settled into this kind of really nice rhythm where we started um, building our own theatre spaces out of garbage in, um, in sheds and in car parks and things like that, our very first show was just in a theatre that we booked that was really, really cheap and in Brunswick. And we just kind of got a bunch of our friends together and put on a show there. And we went on and we were kind of like happy with it. And, um, but at the same time, it was quite an expensive endeavor. And we didn't, we, we broke even, but we were like, we just think there's kind of a smarter way to do this where we spend less money and we take less of a financial risk ourselves. And so that's when we started making things from junk, basically. And would you, where did the spaces come from when you were doing that? Just like word of mouth and things like that. Like we, we just heard about, um, the one space where we did two shows, which is probably my favourite space we, we ever made work in, was um, a closed-down uh, car park under the Commission Flats on Hoddle Street in Collingwood. Um, we just heard that they had this space that was had, was kind of in the process of being converted into a community art space, but very early in that process. There was really nothing down there. It was just piles of garbage that had been left over from old Moomba parades that had been dumped down there. And that was it. And, um, and it was just a big, dank, dripping car park. And we saw the space and we were like we were thinking about what we wanted to do and we had we'd had this we we had already found at that point this point of interest that we had a sister's groom where we wanted to do um uh essentially kind of like live stagings of different film genres that we kind of really uh responded to or that we felt had kind of camp potential and um with no kind of greater political aim it was literally just about doing something that was fun and wild and stupid and offensive and tacky and vomity and gross um and uh, so we were like, we're going to do... This would be a great place to do a, um, like, Roger Corman-style women in prison sexploitation kind of play, like like something that was like the big dollhouse or the big birdcage, like one of those kind of Pam Greer kind of vehicles. So we did that, and we did, made this show called Cell Block Booty there with, um, with <laughs> um, uh, Lady Diamond, the drag queen, who's like this Simon Morrison Baldwin, who's this statuesque seven-foot drag queen who played the lesbian matron who ran the prison and then um and then uh, a bunch of much shorter <laughs> um uh female actors plus ash in terrible drag all playing the inmates of this prison who were just systematically <laughs> destroyed and abused it was wentworth meets pink flamingo <laughs> it was very that that's very oh my god i wish we'd known that at the time we would have put that on our, <laughs> on our flyers oh uh, and I, I i love the idea as well of feeling empowered to feel that you knew what was best because you were doing it on your terms I feel like if you say for example someone had plucked you guys from obscurity from an institution like the Malt House mm. and said we want to support some young writers and directors come into our fold and you know we'll give you a space in which to do it 
I feel like when you're entering someone else's space, you're encouraged to play on their terms. Totally. But maybe something about the idea of doing it in literal garbage <laughs> in a space that was no one gave a fuck about because ultimately it was just going to be lying damp and dormant for another few months. Otherwise, you're like, this is ours. We own this. Totally. And I think there's also something about um, about sexuality and gender that comes into play there as well. Like I go like, on one hand, there's this obvious kind of like this thing about being raised as a boy and um, feeling this sense of strong entitlement and going like, well, of course I can do anything. Like, it's, it's, it, there's like a real element of male privilege to that, obviously. But I think there's also something about world building that happens and that, that's really important to young gay men in particular and spaces of escape, kind of, uh, yeah, so we're building kind of fantasy worlds where you can kind of like actually escape the... Um, the kind of gender roles that are expected of you that you don't particularly identify with, like spaces that are femme and playful <laughs> and where you can actually reject, yeah, kind of expected masculine tropes. Even the idea as well that you're like, well, I've already thrown society's rule book out the window because I've, by their accounts, sort of failed. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, I'll just do whatever I damn well please because yeah. I'm literally writing the, my own rule book as I go now. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was... So it's... I kind of feel like it's both, even though one's kind of a bad thing and the other's kind of more... more positive thing it's something that I kind of think about a lot just going like why on earth did we feel like we could just just put stuff on and assume that people would be interested or want to come and see it or or did we just feel like we had the right to do that or something like that and yeah I think that's probably some kind of mixture of those two things yeah it's a, it's a combination of who dares wins and also the fact that you're I mean even the way you're describing that you were interested in Ash and what he celebrated and, and championed and stood for you would have gotten the taste for the fact that it was new and necessary and exciting and therefore, you know, that if you felt excited by it, other people would as well. And Totally. And I mean, it was also just about what was happening in Melbourne at the time as well. Like there was kind of a very um, strong kind of DIY scene happening out of um, kind of a lot of shopfront spaces in Northcote and um, uh, warehouse spaces around Brunswick which were kind of about people just independently putting on um, art shows and gigs and stuff like that in these kind of like very makeshift kind of ramshackle uh, spaces. And um, there wasn't really any kind of um, theatrical equivalent to that. And there was, but it, there was something about doing that that I really expected. And also particularly in terms of the music, there was something about the fact that there was no primacy on like talent that <laughs> I kind of really, really loved and really appealed to me. Like it wasn't necessarily about who could play anything or make great um, music. It was kind of just about the charisma of the performers and also how, um, how uh, like the point of it was that it was unfinished and the point of it was that it was kind of like the beginning of something and it was actually just propelled by pure enthusiasm and like there's such a joy to that even though often what was the, the subject matter was incredibly nihilistic. And um, so I think that's what we were kind of thinking about and going like, and if people will actually come to these found spaces to do this, maybe they'll come to watch, uh, what would the theatrical equivalent to this be as like a live experience? Um, very, which is in itself is really punk, the idea that, you know, it's not about the polish, it's actually about the idea and people would champion that. Because yeah, they, yeah. They, um, they, they agree with the politics of it more than even just the, the aesthetic. Totally, totally. So at what stage did... Sisters Grimm, you know, uh, the first Sisters Grimm experience I had was at STC, it was Little Mercy, mm -hmm. and it was, it felt, even though you could see its origins in some way that was raw and coming up from a uh, sort of 
DIY street space, it felt like it had already was established in terms of mm. its aesthetic by that stage. At what, st- at what point in the beginning of working with Ash and becoming accepted and you know welcomed by a more established theatre community, um, what was that evolutionary process like? Well, it was really weird because we had a very antagonistic relationship with um, with uh, the kind of mainstream theatre companies in Melbourne. Like, no one from Malthouse, the company who we are sitting in <laughs> right sitting now, in room, <laughs> who, are, who are my employers now, um, had like the like they could not have given a fuck about what we did. We kind of we'd, we'd been kind of been working for maybe about six years when we actually started going like, ah, we just want some money now. Like, we just want somebody to give it. Like, we actually just wanted to try bigger things and that we couldn't afford to do. So we're just kind of like, we just want money now. Like, yeah, we want to we want to try out some stuff. And um, so we tried to get um that show Little Mercy that you saw which was kind of a riff on um, The Exorcist and The Omen and kind of evil child films um, we'd, we'd create, done we'd staged this show at, at the car park that I was talking about before and um, no one from this company came no one from Melbourne Theatre Company came and actually then we had this weird legal wrangle with MTC where we did a parody of one of their shows um, was it that Joanna Murray Smith riff? It was, it was a Hanny Rayson play called The Swimming Club and we did a like one night parody of it in Newcastle for the Crack Theatre Festival where, and to advertise it we took the poster of their play and replaced the actors' faces with anuses because it was called The Rimming Club. Um, <laughs> and we, it was like, I mean, this is what's embarrassing about it and I constantly tell this story and it's just like, it never gets less humiliating so it's like, it's actually like the worst fucking joke. Like, it's just not even funny. It's so immature and fucking dumb. But they, they got so angry and, yeah, and like actually threatened legal action <laughs> against us. So we had like a pretty bad react, like relationship with the theatrical establishment. And... um. And also this very kind of pull-push kind of like punk thing, which was like, well, fuck them. We don't need them, like, whatever. Um, but at the same time, we kind of do need them because we want money. <laughs> and, um, and then, um, and then uh, I just... We struck up a relationship with Polly Rowe, who's the literary manager at Sydney Theatre Company. And um, without any uh, seeing our work even, she kind of was just interested in us and gave us a little development at STC. Um, to rework Little Mercy for to see if it could work in one of their spaces, and um, and then they liked what we made and decided to put it on and program it, um, which was crazy for us. Like it was a huge leap. Like literally, I think earlier that oh no, the end of the previous year, we'd done a show in a shed in Thornbury, um, behind our friend's house, and then um, literally like four months later, we were at STC doing a show with the where our set was being built for us and where our costumes were being made for us and where we had. And it looked four glamorous. Week it did look, yeah, yeah. It, it, it looked expensive. Yeah, <laughs> Girl, it looked expensive. <laughs> I know, we actually didn't have that much money, but um, but we had a very clever designer called Dave Fleischer. And it was the first time we'd ever even worked with a designer before. That was crazy. But it was a, a really interesting process of negotiation where we had to go like, again, like four months ago, we made a set out of junk um, in a garage and now we're here. And what do, what are we? Like, what is our ethos and what are, what are we as a company and who are we as an artist when we don't actually have this anti kind of we can't pretend that we're kind of anti-establishment when we're part of the establishment. So what do you, what do you do? Like, what do you do in the, um, in the context of a company like this? And I think one of the good things that happened was that uh, we uh, kind of actually ended up sharpening our politics a little bit and our work became kind of anti-establishment in a much larger sense. It wasn't just the microcosm of theatre and live art that we had this antagonistic relationship with. I think now our work's become much more kind of... It's become a little bit smarter, I think, and a bit more... Um, 
articulate about uh, it and antagonistic in its in its relationship with a whole other world of kind of codes of representation and politics of power and things like that. It's an interesting idea, the idea of being when the anti-establishment become, joins the establishment and what that means for people who followed you from the beginning. Did you have any resistance from people who had been in the car park observing these <laughs> really sort of, you know, damp warts and all experiences to then, you know, what do you mean you're performing with at the STC? Yeah. You know, was, there, was there any resistance or was it considered successful? Well, I mean, people just definitely dropped off. Like, there, there, there were definitely people there were people who came to see our shows because they knew people who were performing in it we 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 uh cast a lot of people who were drag queens or who played in bands that we liked or who were just charismatic interesting um non-actors in shows um so and who like that was really fun and really cool that we kind of built up this audience of people who normally would never go to see the theater but would go to a car park or a garage or something to or a lounge room to see a play that we made um, but also after a while, it, there was, it was like that six point, six year point where we kind of went like, this is great, but we're like totally preaching to the choir now. There's actually nothing challenging happening in these spaces anymore. Like this, it felt new and galvanizing and cool. And by the time we did Little Mercy in the car park, we were just like, hi again, like you're coming to see something that you're expecting to see. And, and actually the, the next set of challenges or what became great about seeing doing a show at STC was going... Um, it, it, it's a, it's, it was a hugely different challenge. It was going, we had to figure out a way to create something that was challenging, but something that would also... Be palatable? Yeah, yeah. Like, and we did want to, because it's, it's something about... We often talk about our shows like they're kind of Trojan horses. Like, they're kind of... They should be immensely entertaining, and they, are, they still should offer some kind of provocation in terms of showing something to an audience that they would never, not, they would never normally see in a theatre space, especially in established theatre space like STC or like MTC or the Malthouse or wherever. Like, it shouldn't be the kind of work they would see from anybody else. It should be kind of wild and ridiculous and fun and farcical. Um, and the work can always be read on that level. But then also there's supposed to be another level of kind of uh, provocation under that as well. And... Uh, and so, yeah, it becomes about making sure that we actually can get the audience on side so once they like us, we can then start testing that relationship. We can start poking them and provoking them and going, well, how much do you like us now? And do you like us if we do this? <laughs> do you like it? Like, so, so, yeah, I think our shows generally get testier and testier as you watch them. Like you spoke about before about Capone Descending and that started as a very inviting kind of riff on old established Hollywood tropes and then by the end of it was a horrifying it's uh, yeah, it's a horror movie Mess. play playing out over a Tumblr account yeah. that someone spilled juice on the keyboard. Yeah, on a crashing it's... Windows ninety five computer. Yeah, yeah. And so, in that process of you working for that six years, you are making theatre on a dime, and you are putting on. Were you averaging sort of a show every six months, or how often were you making new we, work? We in generally that time? made kind of like a show, but maybe like two shows a year. And, we were pretty prolific. And were you balancing out? you know, a, a full-time uh, money-making lifestyle that you were trying to write on the side of or were you no, always wearing no, on the side no. of giving yourself time? No, I was, like, amazingly poor for a really long time. For a really long time. And in a way that it didn't matter to me at the time because all my friends were poor. Like, it was, it was really a kind of lifestyle that was pretty normalised then. I was actually... I, I, it took me about seven years to do my uni degree I, I did an arts degree and then I ended up just slowly turning it part-time and then casual and doing like one subject a semester while I um while I kept getting 
doing more and more stuff with Ash and Sisters Grimm. And then, um, but yeah, I've, I mostly, I just worked, um, at, in call centers and to, to just a, a couple of days a week. Yeah. Just to survive them. literally just to, and lived in like terrifyingly awful share houses that were all like half derelict. Cause just, I always wonder about that. Cause there are many people who would think, okay, well I'll do, I'll just first when planning my life, I'll do the full-time job. Then I'll make sure I give myself some time with my partner or leisure mm. time, time to go out or recover from my bender. And <laughs> then I'm going to have some creative time for half a day on my, one of my days off. Yeah. And then some people feel like they're never getting anywhere and they're wondering why that they are not progressing with their craft. But I'm really intrigued by the idea of, well, in order to build the foundations of a, of a, you know, a career, you probably gave as much time to writing as one would a really intense legal yeah. degree or something like that. Definitely, definitely. And I think it's also like it just helps that I'm, I've always been a crazy person and always been a complete obsessive as well and nothing makes me... I'm not good at anything else. Like, I'm, <laughs> I have no other skills and I did a... Um, I did a it, like, you know, my degree was in art history so it, was like, it wasn't like I had like a rich alternate life awaiting me <laughs> like, like I didn't have like yeah I couldn't just go back to the law firm or something like that it's like I've kind of really had like absolutely no option but to try and make this work and I don't have a family that like can give me money and and give me a job in daddy's law firm or anything like that or like so yeah it's been always pretty like sink or swim do you feel like there's something about looking around you at a group of friends who also have no money, who are also invested in creative careers that have no cert- certainty to them whatsoever. That's fortifying. That allows you to kind of go, well, it's okay because we're all in it together. Yeah, I think it was. I think that was actually really important for a long time that every, all, everyone I knew was making the same sacrifice and everyone was just really kind of doing their best. But it also felt... Um, I think it was like one of the interesting things was just that like Ash and I, we just worked so fucking hard. Like it was ridiculous. Like we're like that, that show Little Mercy, like we, we, we always made things needlessly complicated for ourselves as well. Like we, we like when we decided we were going to do Little Mercy in the car park, we were looking around and it was a huge space and we had to figure out where we wanted to build our little theater in the car park. And we were just kind of walking around and we, found this like enormous pile of Daryl of like computers that was down in one kind of far flung corner of it that had like a grate above it and we liked the idea that light would come in from that grate so we were like we have to move this we have to move this pile so we spent like two days with a trailer down there just shoveling junk into a trailer to try and clear space so we could then do the excruciating work of building our theatre space together you like this will be the best damn corner of a car park yeah and it would have made theater. no difference to anyone like no one would have fucking known I also imagine that it would have been happening at night time so no light would have come from through the grate. oh I did because the, the flats were up there so all the lights from the um, from the kind of street lights that were all kind of throughout the um, the, the uh, council housing kind of came down it did look cool it was really gloomy and interesting um, except sometimes when the show was loud we'd get people stomping on the grape just being like shut the fuck up like shut up like, <laughs> like oh what's going on up there <laughs> licking cigarette butts down yeah. um, oh I, I love it so at what stage did you so at the point at which Little Mercy goes to the STC by that stage are you fortified enough in your idea of what you're offering that you, you, you feel like you 
can relax and you've got a you know this career is established and now we belong in this space or are you still uncertain whether or not it's back to the car park after the run of that show um no like nothing felt there was 2013 when we did Little Mercy was this kind of like odd year where a few things all just clicked together in one way and we felt like we were being given a chance like that year felt like a year long audition like we had three auditions and the first one was Little Mercy and then in the middle of the year um MTC had the previous year asked us to create a show a new show for their um neon season of independent work their neon festival alongside the daniel schlusser ensemble adina jacobs has fraught outfit the rabble hayloft project and us that's that's fine and was that <laughs> summer midnight in the sorry no that was the sovereign that? wife okay. that, which was a kind of big australiana kind of um we have the never never Baz Luhrmann's Australia kind of three hour epic that we made everyone had mad Botox yeah <laughs> that's right that's what we spent all our money on that was it no set but everybody's faces were perfect doll masks yeah <laughs> um, and then at the end of that year we remounted Summertime in the Garden of Eden which was our southern antebellum kind of um, Gone with the Wind uh, Gone with melodrama. the Wind with Drag Queens Gone with the Wind with Drag Queens yeah um, which we'd done in a shed originally and we reimagined and, and remade that for Griffin Theatre in Sydney and um, Theatre Works here in Melbourne. So it was a really crazy year of like, we'd, and literally the previous year we'd been again in sheds. So all of a sudden we had these kind of like three big opportunities in connection with major companies. I really wonder whether there was something about the, the tapping of the zeitgeist where what you'd been doing had been simmering away for six years where even if the powers that be weren't turning up to the car park and attending, they couldn't help but notice that there was a change, changing of the wind in terms of people's ideas. It was that would have been the second, the latter part of the noughties, where even on the street you could see that mainstream kids wanted to look more alternative. Yeah, you know, yeah. They, were, they were buying hipster chic from a from General Pants Co. So therefore, they were everyone seemed to be tapping into the alternate version of whatever thing they were consuming was, and I wonder if even those who are sitting high on hilltops in yeah. know, the theatre world, all of a sudden were like, we need, the, we need an alternate flavour. We need something new. Or there was some zeitgeist that was tapped in that made the establishment available to you in a yeah. way that maybe they wouldn't have been five years previously. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I think it was actually one of the things that was useful about the fact that we were so disconnected from theatre in the city whatsoever. We were really just making our own thing. And that's not to say what we were making was even especially original. Like, there are people like Charles Bush and the Coquettes and Charles Ludlum. And, like, there's such a history of kind of, like, like fucked up drag kind of gender um, refitting of kind of camp films. It's, like, that element of play and fantasy and um, pastiche is such a strong part of the history of gay culture. Um, so it wasn't like we were doing anything amazingly new or anything like that. Um, it was just that it was... Right really time. different it was the right time to be doing what we were actually just interested in doing like it did, never felt like there was any kind of cynical sense of what are we going to make that's that's that will have mass appeal or that will that will see us recognized or anything like that it was literally just that we were we just actually went where our interests kind of led us and we were lucky enough that something eventually came of that but at the same time I, I, I'm also really conscious that this is I mean we've had a pretty good run but who knows like in five years we might be or in two years in next year we might be back to making shows in car parks again like um and this kind of spate we've had of creating supported work might completely end and there'll be another new guard that will come in to kind of replace us i'm, I'm, I'm sure that has to happen 
There's always yeah. someone younger and hungrier coming always. in the Always, yes. If Showgirls has taught us nothing else. <laughs> and it's taught us so much. <sighs> yes. Um, I Well, so at, the, at this stage it finds you... Well, to give people a, just a top-line idea of what's come out of you, either with Sisters Grimm or a, as a solo creator of work, since that premiere on the SDC mm. stage with Little Mercy, Little Mercy, The Sovereign Wife, Summertime in the Garden of mm-hmm. Eden... Uh, eight gigabytes? Yeah, eight, that was a play I kind of wrote solo um, that was in Sydney. I did another play, a solo play called Moth that was here at Malthouse. I did another play called um, Pompeii LA that was another solo play. Um, I've had another play here called I'm a Miracle. Um, Ash and I have done another, we did an adaptation of the Verdi opera La Traviata downstairs at Belvoir. And last year we made a show for a Melbourne Theatre Company called Lilith the Jungle Girl. What is it called? Lilith the Jungle Girl. Right. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that is averaging two or three productions a year almost. Yeah. Yeah, generally. Actually, I've kind of made one, yeah, kind of at least one Sisters Grimm show a year kind of for the last few years. And then generally I'll write a play or something in adjacent to that. And when you, when, when your workload for other people's, like for being a dramaturg and for doing work on other people's brain children increases, does that mean that you just have less time to have a social life in order to keep up your personal <laughs> I don't have a social life I honestly <laughs> don't like it's it's what like I, I have you know I have a boyfriend my partner Troy who I've been with for like three years who's very long-suffering and very patient with um how I, how much I let work kind of absorb my life but um it's it's it is a lot of work like the workload is crazy I've, I you know when you're working on a lot of projects simultaneously like that um, it's yeah it's like I, I'll go to rehearsals and then come home and work on another project for in the evening or I'll especially if I'm working on a sister's group project it's like Ash and I will work all day in a rehearsal room and then go back to his house and do the rewrites for the next day to try and make the script a little bit better or if it's something I'm directing we'll work all day and I'll go and do my rehearsal prep for the next day to try and so it's like yeah it's kind of like it's pretty consistent 12 hour days and last year I did five shows back to back which was, I won't do that again, but that was like, that was insane. That was like about 10 months of nonstop 12 hour days with no breaks and no, which was by the end of the year, I kind of wasn't really a human anymore. <laughs> I was kind of full on. So at the point when, you know, sometimes if you, there is that saying, if you want something done, ask a busy man. And the flip side of that is, you know, when you're, when you're not working on something, it's actually really hard to get together the energy to like go to the post office. But when you are, have you found a sweet spot with activity where you can be working on just enough that you're firing at all cylinders and you are your most productive? No, not really. Like, I mean, to be honest, one of the things that, like, I, I feel I lo- really love my job. Like, I love what I do. And it's not really just a job. It's, like, it's, it's more than that. It kind of is my life. Like, it's, it's, um, it is my social life. It's, like, I see all my best friends, um, through work and, um, I spend so much of my time when I'm not at work talking about work and talking about the next project and talking about the minutiae of what I'm working on at the moment and in huge levels of, you know, the detail that you need if, you, if something's going to be good and successful. Um, but kind of like I often think about the fact that like before that kind of tipping point happened in 2013, like I had a much better social life. Like I had a really strong, good group of friends who I'd spend a lot of time with that, who, who didn't work in theatre, who I literally just don't see at all anymore. Like it's, um, 
a lot of the kind of non-work aspects of my life have kind of dropped off and I don't really go on holidays or, <laughs> or anything like that. Um, so I don't think I've really found a good work-life balance kind of yet. Um, but it's also a funny thing because theatre... Oh, there's also, like, a, a, the, there's that kind of, like, just work-obsessive thing. But it's also, like, theatre play pays pretty miserably compared to other creative industries, like, compared to TV and compared to... Um, to film or just you know screen work especially like a commission is not very much money and to, to direct something is not very much money and also there's less work as well like the opportunities are far fewer um so even just to kind of stay afloat you have to do a lot of work and you have to work on a lot of things simultaneously and you can't actually work normal nine to five hours and live it's actually not really possible so there's kind of that additional kind of <laughs> imperative there. People who do sort of dem- Democles hanging over your head. Yeah, just in case yeah. You were thinking of you know coasting, of relaxing a little bit. Like yeah, you sort of just can't. Is it like a make hay while the sun shines because there are so many opportunities now? And then if you were to be a more senior creative in the world, you can have a better lifestyle. I don't know. Like yeah, I really don't know. Like it's one of the really th- interesting things about work being working here at Malthouse is kind of um looking at everyone, work, everyone over 45 is dead well, yeah. <laughs> there's that I mean it's also funny like the, the rate of dropout in theatre is crazy it's like it's um a lot of people leave because there just aren't enough opportunities and you can't make a prop decent life and you just get to a certain point where you're in your 30s and you're like I don't want to be eating beans from a can anymore like I actually wanted or I want a family or I want like you know it's um you know, um, so people leave the industry and that's, I feel like that's happening a lot at the moment and a lot of my friends who I've kind of started make, who I made work with and um, are, are, are moving on to different careers and looking outside theatre, um, um, which is it's kind of sad because a lot of them are unbelievably talented and, um, and uh, but yeah, it's, I guess the other thing I feel like I've learned is that yeah, here at Maltese, like I work really closely with um, Matt Lutton, who's the artistic director of the company, and like Matt, I think I'm a crazy person, but Matt works harder than me. Like Matt, like never stops. He is, I, you know, I'll be resting at home um, after finishing my work for the night at eleven, and I'll get an email from Matt at one in the morning that he's he's he just never stops. Like never stops thinking about work, never turns his brain off. It's incredibly inspiring <laughs> like it's it's amazing his work ethic is phenomenal but I think actually when you get further to the top actually that's what happens the workload is it's particularly at kind of companies like this where there's very little administrative support and stuff like that like everything's run the smell of an oily rag so all the people in those kind of top positions are working seven people's jobs at once and it's but we only do it because we like it because it's pretty fucking miserable other than that like as a, <laughs> as a kind of as a, as a way of working or so living we, so when you are in the process of so now I, I imagine by the sound of things you have the job you're doing for someone else running in tandem with the, the work you're creating for yourself how many projects in advance are you thinking about do you sort of think I know what my next three things going to be or I'm thinking I'm gathering inspiration mm. slowly for what I'm going to do for myself once I get a bit more time off the back of this project do you how many steps ahead are you thinking um, I don't. Ugh, I don't know. Oddly, at the moment, I feel like um, I I'm probably at a point at the moment where I, I'm actually not sure what my next things are going to be, and that's probably the first time that's happened in maybe like five or six years, or maybe even longer. 
where I kind of um I've got a play I've got to write for a theatre company. I don't really know what it's going to be. Although oddly, the play, the homosexuals that I've got running in Griffin at the moment, I didn't know what that was going to be for years and years. And I think it took me about four years before I actually wrote that play, from getting initially commissioned to write it. Oh, so what was the what was the nucleus of? Uh, well, how did how did it, the process begin? Did someone come to you and say, "I would like you to write a play about this topic"? Well, for for the homosexuals, it was the commission came first. It was that um. Uh, uh, Bruce Maher and uh, Greg Waters um, to celebrate uh, an anniversary um, uh, uh, to celebrate their wedding anniversary um, gather a group of friends together to commission a playwright and um, in conjunction with Playwriting Australia and Playwriting Australia suggested me to them um, because at that point it was fairly early on in my career and I hadn't really had many big commissions but um, Playwriting Australia thought I could probably write a good play and thought Bruce and Greg might like my work, which they did. So I got the commission from them and then I was just like... So they were like, write a play, write a play about anything you want. And I had no idea what I wanted to write a play about at that point. And I was also working on multiple Sisters Grimm projects at the time and um, I think I was writing another play. And so it kind of just kind of sat there in the background for a long time and I kind of had this vague idea that I'd write something about um, the earthquake in Haiti... And, um, and religious divine suffering and all stuff like that. And then... Um, was that because those ideas had sort of come to you in various various points in the process and you thought, oh, I'll file that away under yeah, my... Yeah, totally. ...things I'd like to write about? Yeah, for, for that one, I think it was just that I'd, yeah, I'd been reading about the earthquake in Haiti and I'd seen a documentary where um, somebody who was, was describing sitting next to their... You know, about how that earthquake happened and they're just then... There was no support services to um, save anyone. So it was just like this decimated city that sat decimated for days while help arrived, waiting for help to arrive. And a guy spoke about listening to his wife slowly die under a pile of rubble. And he was saying that afterwards, he was like, I have nothing left. Like, all I have left is my faith in God. Like, God is all I have. But then God also did this. So <laughs> what, what do I do now? Which I thought was terrifying and remarkable and um and then I, I and then around the same time as that i um, saw these images in the chicago institute of art that a flemish painter called Derek boots had painted and they were just images of christ um the via dolorosa and stuff like that but it was like he, he doesn't paint christ like this kind of beautiful muscular guy with a six-pack um uh kind of doing it you know a um scap shrug at a gym on a cross it's like he's like crying blood and always looks like his skin's melting off his body like the, the images of actual suffering and I thought they were incredibly moving so I was going to write something about that that was a very long description of a no. play that I've never wrote and will never write but, but the, the <laughs> thing that I loved the most about it was I got a taste for what could be considered the nucleus of a process that leads to a play yeah yeah which yeah is because I mean think about the amount of content we consume daily and yeah. the amount of images that flash before our eyes or stories we hear or documentaries we watch or bits of Instagram fodder that come to us you know probably literally thousands of things a day yeah. so to, I'm really intrigued by the idea of what takes it from a flint in your eyeballs to a spark in your creative mind to yeah. something that lingers with you long enough that you meditate over it to think okay, not only is there something in this for me that I'm turned on by enough to want to spend six months of my life mm. at least with it, or sometimes you know, four years of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that 
that I that you and I don't even know if you would articulate this to yourself, but but other people should find out about this as well. Or you know, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. an important thing for me to tell this story this year, as opposed to in a few years' time when maybe it's going to be more ripe. Yeah. Um, so I do love that. I I love that idea, and so the homosexuals was going down a tangent of Haitian. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. I mean, the, yeah, it was a completely different project then. And then I like to, it wasn't even a point to give of context of why it's so amusing. It ends up becoming a, a farce, a, a farcical <laughs> darling her a pot's point set shrill <laughs> camp as anything politically incorrect to the point of being, I don't know, just berating the audience with everything they could possibly imagine could ever be on PC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it went from something very gentle and beautiful to something very, as you say, shrill and annoying and hysterical. But there wasn't actually like, it wasn't like it was a process of like slow evolution to that. I literally got to a point where I was like, I don't want to, I just don't want to write that thing anymore. Like, I'm actually not interested in that. I think that spark kind of eventually went out and I was really trying to blow on it and make it ignite again and it just didn't. Do you think it was to do with the feeling that you had at the point at which you engaged with that inspirational material in the first place? Yeah, it was. It was like part of, I mean, it was just kind of going, like, I loved the material, but I was then I was just going like, who the fuck am I to write a play about Haiti and about Haitians, like, surviving one of the most, like, apocalyptic disasters in a country that has been marked and deeply scarred by disaster and fucking colonialism and murder and genocide and revolution and uprising from time immemorial and you know it's I was just like I'm not the right I'm not the person to write this basically and um, I kept trying to think of different takes I could have on the material that could kind of decenter my whiteness a little bit or my um, Australian-ness and I was like going maybe I'll go to Haiti and I'll meet people and I'll research it but that's also not how I work as a writer like I said before I really actually don't like people like I don't I'm, and I'm very <laughs> deeply socially awkward I don't like like I'm not one of those people who wants to like I'm not a writer who wants to spend a lot of time around people kind of collecting the truth and then telling the broadcasting the truth to the world it's like I'm I, I like concepts and I like ideas and I like politics more than I like the people who <laughs> the, the stories are active, of the yeah, <laughs> yeah than the human beings I kind of just generally think human people are garbage um so, and so then I made a play called The Homosexuals that more kind of actually just articulated that worldview I just said. I also feel like it's sometimes, you know, without, to be a miniaturist and to be epic in the ideas that you're presenting in, you know, a nice Jane mm. Austen diorama, <laughs> <laughs> in Bot's point, is so much more epic because you also, you allow the audience to, if they choose to, to witness the themes that are grander than just the room yeah and you know there sometimes can be power in that for, and the, the reverse is I would always worry that yeah who am I to be trying to make grand sweeping statements about you know the experience of a people yeah and by keeping it really specific people can view it only as that if they choose to or they can look at the wider trends or ideals well yeah exactly and I think that's kind of that was the thing that was um yeah that was the thing that was complex about it and kind of good about it as well like I, I felt very it was almost accidental like I'd had a like I'm a very mouthy person and I had, had a lot of kind of opinions about um the nature of allyship in the uh in the gay community over the last few years and about the kind of like ascendant social status of gay men um and the idea that uh a lot of people 
uh, and a lot of other people in the LGBTIQA community had kind of been uh, left behind or uh, had been kind of rendered voiceless in this uh, enormously amplified push for um, marriage equality, uh, which is you know being kind of relentlessly spoken about as the number one most kind of pressing issue for that entire brighter, broader kind of community. Um, so there was something that had kind of really pissed me off and something that I had been rolling my eyes kind of vigorously at for years and years and years. And then, um, again, kind of in a very slow process of accumulation, the idea of writing a farce was appealing to me and had been for a long time. An article I read about a Caitlyn Jenner Halloween costume and um, kind of got stuck in my head. <laughs> um, and um, very and uh, it kind of, over years and years, I've been kind of like obsessively kind of watching um, lots of little kind of Twitter explosions and kind of fights about the semantics of language and identity and who has the right to offend, who does not have the right to offend and it all just kind of like coalesced and eventually formed the idea for this play and that's kind of how the homosexuals kind of came about. Plus you wanted to see the word faggots on the side of a tram. I did really, oh fuck that was the funny thing, yeah the play was originally called Faggots, it was just called Faggots and <laughs> <laughs> um, and Which I think maintained to the release. I mean, I received it as faggots on my ticket. and The title I eventually chose for it was The Homosexuals or Faggots. Okay. Um, so the word faggots was definitely still in there. But it was also kind of oddly about the... That was kind of also about the game of choice that evolved in even just attempting to titling, title the play because... Um, we were literally choosing between the homosexuals or faggots, but that was the same choice that the characters in the play have to make constantly between um, doing something or, or censoring their own language and making it kind of medicalised and sterile <laughs> in the sense of the term like the homosexuals or using the more kind of like robust um, kind of PC language, uh, anti-PC anti language in something like the faggots, which offends people, but which for somebody like me articulates my identity perfectly. I call myself a faggot and I call my, my friends all call each other faggots. And there's, you know, obviously there's power in the reclamation of that, of that term as well, even though it is still a, a hugely difficult kind of slur. Um, so that was, yeah, that kind of ended up being the game of the title. But I still loved that people had to say faggots if they wanted to, to talk about it. Especially like a Malthouse audience. Like, yeah. two to faggots, please. They all just said the homosexuals, oh. but that's what I mean. Sometimes people would just risk the bravery and go like, two tickets to the homosexuals or faggots. Like it's... <laughs> like it's a secret word to get in the of the blue oyster. And still not knowing whether the person's going to go, oh, how dare you? How dare you, madam? So if I... Do you identify with anything resembling writer's block? Does it ever... Experience. Yes, yeah, constantly. What does it look like and how do you overcome it? Well, I'd, I mean, for, the, for better or worse, I'm a terrible procrastinator and I do everything at the last minute, which is, uh, on one hand, terrible and devastating because um, I miss deadlines constantly. And, but on the other hand, I'm trying to learn to be better with it because as I described earlier, um, I'm a hopeless fiddler and rewriter and... Um, and I feel like if I give, if, if I actually started things too far in advance, it actually wouldn't make that much of a difference. Like it's, cause I'll, it'll just, it'll, the first draft of something I write never resembles the final draft anyway, in any way, shape or form. I change characters, I roll to the storyline dramatically. I, the, the final draft of Faggots looked nothing like the first draft of Faggots. I think the prologue was the same and that was all. Um, so yeah, it, um, 
Yeah. I guess in that sense, um, because there's always tremendous time pressure, I kind of can't have writer's block. Like, I'm not allowed to. With something like The Homosexuals, I was writing for the towards the first day of rehearsal. So you can't do anything about that. Like, you just have to not have writer's block. <laughs> and, so, and I'm assuming that the way it happens is the, the plays established, there are drafts are, that are written at theatre from a, a not-yet-finished script says, we would like to put this on at this month of the year. Yeah. So you've got your start date locked in before the drafts are already finished. Yeah. And is that always the case, no matter if, for new works, or is it... Um, is that not generally common? yeah yeah I mean it changes from project to project sometimes it's a script that's completely finished and it's gone through many drafts and is a beautifully polished thing um, but often it's um, just about the potential of the material that exists already be it an unfinished draft be it a super raw first draft that's not there but the theatre company goes I think this can get there and I think it'll be awesome so we're just going to program it and hope it gets there and that that happens a lot it's really the hedging of bets, especially yes. when it comes to, yeah. like, for example, the physical language of a farce is so specific and mm. challenging. And then to think, okay, I'm going to write something that fits into this genre, which is a really specific genre, and I've got this start date, and I just have to, you know, burrow towards this start date and, you know, see how we go. <laughs> Fingers yeah. crossed. I mean, I wouldn't, that was probably incredibly arrogant of me to assume that I could just write a farce. And that I could write it in the amount of time I had allotted, because as I learned, the, the learning curve was very steep. But it was still it took me way too long to realise that I got myself in way over my head trying to write this what, kind uh, of narrative. Well, for those that aren't familiar with what a farce is, from my you know pedestrian understanding of it, it's origins in French theatre. There's a lot of slamming doors. There's an increasing level of chaos that seems to be revolving around mistaken identity yeah. usually, and it usually reaches a climactic crescendo yes. that is probably met both in the writing and in the energy of the performers to a yeah. point at which things just reach their kind of climactic peak. Yeah, it's complete. Like, it's 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 kind of almost the most vaudevillian style of, um, of kind of fourth wall comedy you can get where it's, like you say, it's, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's based in this kind of, like, uh, constant... Uh, increasing acceleration that has to kind of occur based around misunderstandings, lies, people trying to get away with things. Comedy of manners. And yes, yeah. Keeping up appearances. Stay, yes, and very that. And always lots of wordplay, lots of slapstick, lots of terrible puns, lots of... Um, Faulty Towers is like a classic example of that um, and probably one of the most popular examples. Um, uh, but it's it's like fiendishly complicated to write them. They're, yeah, it's... it's um, the, the kind of you need in crazy amounts of plot just stuff has to happen constantly it's like it's like you know 20 beats of action a page just and um and they it's almost like building a clock or something like that or it's um everything has to be kind of just correctly weighted and everything has to has to counterweight something else and if you move one thing in one direction something else has to have a complementary effect so and how do you know all this? Is it from... Do you research by consuming a lot of pre, pre-existing farces? Yeah, from farces. For, for this project I did, I actually just read a lot of farces. But I kind of... All, I'd, I'd always read it just for the pleasure. And, um, and then I'd sit down and just think... I'd pull it apart and think about how it works. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of disassembling a little machine or something like that. And then... Um, but of course, the problem was then just going building my own machine was 
<laughs> really hard. I kind of the, I think the the best way I managed to describe it was that it's actually like trying to trying to write a fast is like trying to assemble a Lego Technic with no manual and also no picture on the box. Do you know what I mean? Like it's actually just all you have are the pieces. And actually, you have more pieces than you need to know how to use, but you've still got to create a functioning machine that moves beautifully because it's very rigid and but you actually only know if you're doing it right as soon as you, when you've got it on the floor. You actually know, only know if it works once it's up there and the actors are actually doing it. So that was the crazy thing about working on the homosexuals as well is that I brought a draft in on the first day. We read it around the table and it was like, okay, I've got to go and rewrite that. And over two weeks of rehearsals, I don't think the actors actually got a draft that they could start learning until two weeks in, which is generally quite late for a How play. many weeks did you have to rehearse that one? Only four, which is not enough. Okay. <laughs> How many weeks do you ideally like to have to rehearse? I mean, for a new play, you should have five weeks at least. Um, in Australia, because um, no theatre companies have money anymore, um, a lot of companies have cut that down to four weeks, but that's like a kind of... Um, that's a one-size-fits-all kind of approach to rehearsals because that means even if you're just doing the crucible you get five, four weeks. And if you're doing a new play, which inevitably does need rewrites and which needs changes and which needs to be kind of improved what's in the room, like you still only get four weeks to do it. So it's and pretty also, brutal. if someone's bringing to the table every time they've seen The Crucible as research yeah. versus <laughs> experiencing the, word, the words for the first time on the page, it's an entirely different yeah, yeah. process. Yeah, totally. What I love to sort of wrap up with an idea of future and the idea of where if I bumped into you in a year's time mm -hmm. and said to you how's that thing going and you said I've nailed it it's in the bag I'm so happy with it <laughs> what would that fantasy project of a year or so in the future be that you could say yes I'm done um I, I'm working on a musical at the moment and um, I'm really scared by that like I'm, I'm really challenged by it like in a really great way um, so and was it the, that's the first time you've done a musical yeah 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 does that mean that you are collaborating with someone who knows yes yeah we're music yeah it's, it's a sisters grim musical it's like Ash and I are collaborating with a composer on it um, who's Casey Bonetto who wrote the Keating Keating the musical amongst many other things um, so we're all working together for the first time and it's great it's so fun and um, but it's big and it's scary and it's um yeah, so in a year's time, if I'd be if I'd be able to say to you that we'd get on, done an amazing, we were up to an amazing third draft of that, I'd be very very happy. But also, I will never say to anybody that it's going well, even <laughs> even, if, even if you suspect it could be. No, I just never think anything's good, Dan. <laughs> when you when you do a Sisters Grimm thing versus you're when you're compartmentalizing inspiration into the solo pile or mm -hmm. the Sisters Grimm collab pile. Do you generally save the more far out, bizarro, kooky stuff for Sisters Grimm, and do you save the, the, the more sober stuff for yourself, or is there no real? Yeah, kind of. I mean, that, 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 yeah. I mean, one of the big things with if it's a Sisters Grimm project is that Ash has to like it and feel as excited about it as I, as I do. And um, he and I have really, really different taste in stuff. Like, um, I think that's kind of what's the to the strength of our company. Like. Ash is first and foremost, he is an entertainer, he's incredibly smart, has an amazing political brain, um, but his kind of first responsibility is to the audience and um, I have that in me as well in the sense that I like to look care of, take care of an audience but I don't always, I don't mind if they're confused or if they're annoyed <laughs> as much as Ash does. Um, so... 
Uh, yeah, and just our taste in art is very different. I kind of like work that's quite... My, my, my taste is kind of a lot more non-linear and, um, and I like abstraction a lot more than Ash does. Ash kind of likes work that's smart and entertaining. Um, so, yeah, for something to kind of like actually tick both of those boxes and not every project, it's pretty rare that something does. So for us to both get excited about something and go, yeah, that's something we're going to work on for the next couple of years, it has to, yeah, has to work in that way. Well, I really hope that in a year's time we are toasting to your music. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that too. Thank you so much for having a chat. Thank you. Thank you for chatting with me and thank you for asking such great questions. Oh.